there's this huge knowledge gap between like the knowledge necessary to solve these problems and what will be required to deal with something like nuclear weapons and that crisis. Can the doomsday clock also help bridge the gap in ways that we're not even seeing? Just some sort of unifying tool to help with division between people. Welcome to the Explorations Podcast, interdisciplinary discussions that unravel the secrets to a life well-lived. I'm your host, Luis Hernandez, filmmaker, and proud to announce CEO of PictureLock's production company. That's right, I started a video production company in Philadelphia, inspired by the entrepreneurial mindset of our fellow co-host, Edwin. So actually, Edwin is executive coaching, consulting, leadership modeling in business education and finance. Edwin, you're the guy that when it comes to conceptualizing just like businesses, I got to say that you have helped me a lot. So I'm very excited. And I want to actually open up this episode before we get into anything. I wanted to get your take on the Supreme Court ruling on student loans. <laughs> I know it's a, kind of a <laughs> random topic. Edwin doesn't look too happy <laughs> to talk about this. I Prior to the recording, folks, I said I was going to give him a tough question. So Edwin, here it is. As someone interested and who is heavily involved in the education entrepreneurial, what do you make of that? What do you make of this concept of like millions of people who have spent many dollars on higher education, kind of having this thing dangled by a current president, like a campaign promise, and then all of a sudden, I mean, not all of a sudden, but through a series of events, now it's like, student loans or it turns out we're going to have to repay them and stuff. I feel like this will have an effect on the mindset of not only those who took out student loans, but even future generations and, and the education sector. So I immediately thought about you and this current event topic. So Edwin, welcome to the show. And what's your take on it? Like, just give us your take on that particular topic. Man, I love the questions, Lewis. Man. You, you got to keep doing this. This is, this is great. <laughs> You know, I'm going to pass it back to Joe because I'm going to go into philosophy here. And specifically, this is going to turn into ethics. The reality is that politics is really about, it's game theoretic almost, right? It's just like, who gains what? That's all we're complaining about. Whether or not this was right or wrong is what I care most about. I think what the Biden administration is trying to do is to correct a wrong in that the cost of education has reached a point where we are at a disadvantage as a country. Republican or Democrat, forget the Supreme Court decision. The fact that there's going to be almost a tax on the population means that we're going to have some economic situations to deal with. So that this is just me from the business side. It's, just, it's going to impact everyone the same. And everyone who had an opinion about it, it won't matter because we're all going to suffer one way or another. But the right or wrong part of it, I would love to hear Joe's perspective, is that do a future self or a future society owns the correction of a past wrong? I mean, I can go down the rabbit hole on this one, specifically as it comes to our history with slavery and compensation to that and so on. As I've always thought about those corrections of past wrongs in this light of ethics. And Joe, man, you gotta, yeah. I know yeah. you have something to say here. <laughs> no, it's a great question, Lewis, and I love the way you framed it, Edwin. You know, the great challenge is thinking about it intergenerationally, as you pointed out, Edwin. We can think of ethics in real time, as sometimes we typically do, and we can think about 
responsibility, moral responsibility and ethics in relation to generations. So whether we're talking about eco-justice or ecological ethics, the question of reparations with regards to slavery or debt cancellation, right? In a certain sense, it could be seen as a sort of intergenerational problem, although one may want to push back on whether or not that is the case with regards to student loan forgiveness. Is it truly intergenerational? The majority of people who can or cannot have their loans forgiven, they themselves are, in a certain sense, responsible, and this raises questions, right? Insofar as they signed up and they knew the tuition that they had to pay back, and they may not have known all the particularities that are ingredient to that, for example, interest rates and the economic situation of work, employment, unemployment, when they, when they graduate with their bachelor's degree and so on. But nevertheless, it raises the question of responsibility and we can couch it as such. Is it the government's responsibility to do this or is it the citizens, the citizenry? And that is a tough question insofar as we can see, as I think you already did, Edwin, one could perceive it in the sense of saying, well, you know, although a student is signing up for <laughs> some classes, they, they, they have been enrolled in a, in a school, they see their tuition, in a certain way, they really don't know, right? So how could they be responsible, right? That, that there is an embedded ignorance for incoming freshmen, especially first-generational students, and so on. And they also don't know that what they're paying for for the education perhaps is too exceedingly high for other reasons. So, of course, I'm not going to resolve <laughs> the question and, and answer it here. I'm just sort of uh, attempting to lay out some of the, the variables that factor into our thinking about this. But it's such a great question, Lewis. It really is. It's a very real, potent thing that all of us are feeling it either directly or indirectly, as Edwin pointed out. If you're just joining us, you are listening to the voice of philosophy professor and pastoral counselor, Dr. Joseph Terry. I had to just throw that in there, right? Because by the time this episode airs, you'll be known as Dr. Joseph Terry. Yes, and before we get into the, the heart of the episode, uh, I feel like this is a great opening question. Do you want to share a little bit like, now you're a doctor. How'd that happen, Joe? What happened there? <laughs> yeah, I've had the privilege of attending the University of Nottingham, UK for the past few years, did a full-time pursuit in a degree in philosophical theology. My dissertation orbits the theme of philosophical and theological anthropology and had such a, an amazing journey with that, learned so much. I still continue to learn. My defense is coming up actually in a few days, obviously it would have passed by the time this is aired. And so hopefully it is the case that I will be a doctor. I believe it. <laughs> Speaking, <laughs> you know, presumptuously, but no, yes, it's been a beautiful ride and I'm so happy and really excited to share my learnings, what I have been privileged to receive through my studies and, and all of that there with everybody, especially the audience. Yeah, and we're excited to continue this journey on, on just kind of seeking knowledge and wisdom in, in all these different aspects of life that we've discussed so far. And in today's episode, 
I'm really excited to jump into what is a seemingly morbid topic. That is the doomsday clock, which for those who don't know, the doomsday clock is a symbol that represents the likelihood of a human-made global catastrophe. We're going to get into the history of it. We're going to talk about it because actually this year, the doomsday clock has jumped to its shortest time to midnight, which is 90 seconds to midnight. And I remember in school when I first heard about it, I don't know, like 2010s or whatever. At that point, the closest the doomsday clock got to was two minutes to midnight. And that was during the, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I remember like when I heard about it, I was like, wow, two minutes to midnight. Like that's scary. Like I can't believe it. This doomsday clock that's been there since 1947. Like that makes sense. It feels like recently, last couple of years, like two minutes doesn't really mean anything. Like it's just kind of meaningless now that it's like 100 seconds, 90 seconds. So I wanted to really jump into this concept with you guys, because when we were prepping this episode, you each brought a perspective that I wasn't thinking about. So let me start from the very beginning. It was created in 1947 by a group of atomic scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. That was the code name for the development of the atomic bomb during World War II. On July 21st, Nolan's releasing the film Oppenheimer, starring Cillian Murphy, and, and that explores that side, the Manhattan Project, and the start of it. And I find it so interesting that this major turning point, right, when mankind creates nuclear weapons, like weapons of unseen mass destruction, it's around that time that the same scientists decide, like, hey, we need this visual symbol, and, and there it is, the doomsday clock. What do you guys think of this concept of the doomsday clock? The fact that it was made by the same scientists who helped develop the atomic bomb and what do you make of the fact that it is at its closest point that it, it has ever been like as a symbol, considering the context of the world that we live in today? For a lot of reasons, I've actually really embraced this concept of the doomsday clock because it's probably one of the most globally responsible things that we've done as a species. Most of our day-to-day -day is couched in our sort of national identity there's nothing truly that we share around like, oh, yeah, what are we doing as humans together on this earth? So from my perspective, the doomsday clock actually speaks to our personal finitude. But on the other side of that, it does speak to the sustainability of our planet. And the reason I say that is because we're not very special in terms of our own extinction, right? Nature has been doing that, has done that about five times before on this planet. So the equivalent to a doomsday clock has happened naturally, quite naturally. And for anyone who's actually studied cosmology, we probably understand that the miracle actually is in our current existence and not our, you know, not in the potentiality around our ability to destroy ourselves as a species, right? There's nothing special about blowing Earth up. And then Earth repairing itself. I think that's the first thing I would say, right? We literally had crashed into our moon or the prototype to our moon. And we had life come out of that experience. So I think that is the first thing I'll say is just like throughout, you know, if you look at the arc of our, of the history of Earth, it has less of an impact than we can ever imagine. What we're really talking about is our own extinction. And I think what that means for us is struggling with what can we control, right? So since the advent of science, philosophy for that, we've really 
have been on this journey, not only to understand, but to control and mostly to control our destiny. And the Doomsday Clock is a reminder of that mission. It's apt today because we're going through the same process now, right? People are saying, you know, with Oppenheimer coming out, all in the back of everyone's mind is this, are we creating the next Terminator, <laughs> right? And, you know, with AI, are we, are we doing the equivalent of destroying ourselves? At least in that situation, we're creating a new entity that will probably take right. over. So I think we're really struggling with that back and forth. I love what you said, Edwin, with regards to the collective responsibility that is made manifest by means of the invention of this clock, right? Insofar as human beings are, as it were, coming together to say, hey, we need to generate an awareness around the imminent danger that faces all of us, that is to say an existential threat. We need to do so, we need to do so now, notwithstanding the historical fact that the conception of the doomsday clock comes about by just a few human beings, right? Not the totality of the human species, but you know, notwithstanding, listen, putting that to the side, it doesn't matter because it seems to be the case that everybody now recognizes its importance. And I think that's something to really drive home the responsibility that is generated and cultivated by means of an awareness of this clock. Offering some potential critiques, however, as to whether or not this is a good thing, right? <laughs> and one might say, well, it just sounded like you said it was a good thing. Why, why offer some critiques? But I think it's important for us to look at any given issue from a number of angles, right? And so some pushback to the idea of a doomsday clock that somehow is really hyper-focused on particular existential threats, some of the pushback against that would be the radical subjectivity of it. Like who is determining the minutes or the seconds that we're down to this time, right? Some would argue oh, this is, seems to be fear-mongering. Some may even perhaps argue that this is oversimplified, right? This is a sort of simplification that, that really doesn't help insofar as human beings are always and altogether at the precipice of some kind of destruction, right? Now, one may say, well, that, that, that in of itself is perhaps too simple of an analysis. But again, all of these things we can raise, whether or not this is a rational thing to do, right, to, to have this clock, or does it maybe bring up more issues than it would resolve? I can't help but think about a quote. I think it's a quote from none other than Albert Einstein, who says, you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. It's quite telling that it's the scientists of the Manhattan Project who invented the atomic bomb that would now also invent the doomsday clock. I think there's an irony here. And perhaps we need to think really carefully about what Einstein is articulating in that, right? We can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. So perhaps insofar as the mind that is focused on this sort of imminent danger is also the mind that brings about those factors that cause us to be in imminent danger, we may need a decisive shift in our paradigm, in our thinking, right? We may say, we may need to say, okay, we need to sort of look at this altogether differently. And again, Edwin, I love it when you said with regards to extinction, right? In the geological period of the earth, at least five mass extinctions and whatnot, there seems to be something ubiquitous to that. And so perhaps we need to maybe approach it in a different way. 
I can't help but also think about Jesus when he says, you know, you can't put new wine in old wine skins, because if you do that, it will burst the old wine skins. And that sounds very similar to what Einstein is in a sense saying, that we can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. We need a paradigm shift. We need something other to be introduced into this thinking, into the conversation. Now, I also speak unapologetically as a theologian, a Catholic theologian to be precise. And so as I think theologically about the issue, there are a number of things that come to mind and some beautiful narratives, right? Which could be taken just as that, regardless of one's theological commitments, right? Or absence thereof, right? The narrative of the Tower of Babel. Humanity doesn't want to be dispersed. Humanity wants to make a name for itself. Humanity, in other words, desires longevity. Humanity then comes around, constructs this tower to the heavens so that one secures a kind of rootedness. And yet the irony is, is that insofar as we try to do that, we are always and altogether, as it were, moving away from solidity, right? Away from, from the anchoring of things. Well, Joe, what does that mean? Well, we live in an, a world, right? The metaphysical law of cause and effect. And so there is something impermanent, decisively impermanent about all things. So that means that, okay, if we want to cultivate longevity, we want to definitely use the tools at hand, the best thinking, the best reasoning, the best technology, whatever we can. But perhaps we want to do that with a spirit of humility. Perhaps we need to recognize that there's something higher and deeper that needs to galvanize the entire enterprise. Because if we do this on our own terms, we actually may, and again, ironically, bring about our own demise all the more. When you were first sharing, the sense that I was getting from you, and correct me if I was wrong, is that the premise of the doomsday clock is problematic in the sense that the same scientists who created atomic weapons all of a sudden like thought about the creation of these atomic weapons, like the existential existence of the species like came more into play. And I wonder, okay, that's what prompted creating the doomsday clock, but it's still from that same scientist mindset that designed the atomic weapons in the first place. So are you to one extent rejecting the premise of the doomsday clock or because what I did hear you mention towards the end is that about it being a potential tool, not as like the flagship tool for mankind, but just yet another tool for humanity to kind of figure itself out. Um, Such a great question, Lewis. I definitely don't want to submit the idea that we should do away with the idea of the clock altogether, right? Again, insofar as it cultivates a global awareness of real imminent dangers, I think it serves a purpose. That being said, what I'm also seeking to state here is that we most likely need a fresh way of approaching the problems that appear to us as existential threats, right? We need a paradigmatic shift, a paradigm shift. And I don't think that that paradigm shift is going to come from the brilliance of university professors or anyone else in those own terms. Now, of course, what does that mean? <laughs> right? And at this point, we reach an, an impasse, right? We reach a chasm 
insofar as by virtue of my own metaphysical and theological commitments, I am now speaking from the place of what I would perceive as revelation. So the paradigm shift will come from something other. What that other is, we can sort of perhaps table that for just a moment or consider it. But the paradigm shift is not going to come from our own ingenuity, I think. Now, that doesn't mean that we should not work hard with all the natural resources. I love, for instance, the church's teaching, or what some would call the Catholic both and, rather than the either or dynamic, right? It's not like, okay, God's going to save us, and therefore we don't need to do anything, or, okay, God, forget about God, we're going to do everything, right? It, that's a, an altogether, perhaps even Protestant way of, of perceiving it. The Catholic perspective is, no, no, we want to use the best resources we have, but always with the spirit of humility, recognizing that there is something more at stake, and we need to be in a posture to receive that. Now, how does that apply to the particular existential threats? That's something else that we can sort of address, but I hope that's clear. You know, I hope that's helpful there. I think it would be good to talk about polycrises and to help the listener. I wanted to just read a little from the bulletin for this year mentions four major areas that justified the decision to drop the doomsday clock to 90 seconds. The first area was nuclear risk, and there's references to the war in Ukraine. Next was climate change, and that just getting worse of a problem. Third is biological threats, just the idea of disease outbreak. And then finally, it's disruptive technologies, including like drone warfare, misinformation, et cetera. I wanted to ask Edwin this question about polycrises and metacrises. In my opinion, the doomsday clock kind of like neatly ties these major crises together and packages them into one kind of product <laughs> for us to kind of look at together. Do you think that helps mankind kind of figure things out to just like put these major crises together? Or like, what's your take on that? considering your background and your perspective, both from the practical standpoint, like as an entrepreneur, but even also we've talked about ethics and, and your philosophy engaging these things. What do you make of, of like these major pillars that were listed in the doomsday clock? It's not a coincidence that those same pillars have actually been the ones that have been pointed to from a financial, economic, socioeconomic uh, perspective. There's a lot of conversation around this polycrisis or metacrisis that has a lot to do with the fact that we actually don't have the tools necessary to understand the challenges that we face. Joe pointed towards the doomsday clock is as useful in that it's a barometer, right? It is a pseudo measuring tool that tells us, oh my God, things are getting worse and more complex or whatever you want to say. Yeah, that's helpful to know. I think what most people do miss is that especially those who are techno-optimists and those who are who ground a lot of their hope in science, engineering, what the polycrisis metacrisis tells us is that a lot of our future solution will come outside of the realm of how science and engineering has progressed to this date. There's a serious limitation in our ability to actually understand the complexity Right. So there's a lot of conversation around complexity now because what we're finding out is that there's dynamics around the mechanisms in our lives that does not follow 
the rules of physics per se. It, it's no longer useful. Best physics to date. This was one of my realization, right? I was like, oh, I'm going to go into science so I can understand everything. And then I took physics. Joe knows this very well. And physics was able to give me the most accurate solution. And even though it's not accurate to what the model of a hydrogen model looks like, or a hydrogen atom. That's it. So we're made of how many countless amount of molecules that are built on that complexity. Physics can only explain up to the model of a hydrogen atom. And if you can try to wrap your head around that, then I think you start to understand what our limitations are when it comes to the poly crises. It's like, now we're talking about individuals, right? We can't even understand our own consciousness. And then we're talking about our consciousness from the perspective of interacting with other consciousness and, and all those things interacting with, you know, on and on and on and on, right? So if that happens, I think to Joe's point, there are unforeseen forces that we are actually not capable of modeling today, right? In terms of the doomsday clock, what happens to the model if aliens are discovered, right? Or they discover us, right? And that's not, it's not too far-fetched, but if that happens, what happens to the model? It means that there's other planets that have, that's habitable. All right, we can destroy this planet. We'll find a new one, right? Our concepts are actually only as limited as um, our ability to actually understand what has happened in the past. All of that is about to change. All of that is going to change. What you pointed out just now is that there seems to be, my impression is like there's this huge knowledge gap between like the knowledge necessary to solve these problems and what will be required to deal with something like nuclear weapons and that crisis. Can the doomsday clock also help, I guess, like on a moral or on a philosophical level, like can be a tool to kind of bridge the gap in ways that we're not even seeing, not only just solving problems in a practical, we should be doing A, B, and C, but just some sort of unifying tool to help with division between people. Yeah, you know, definitely. It's a great tool insofar as it is generating some kind of awareness around these real existential threats. Is the tool useful, however, and this is the question that I hear you positing, insofar as we have gaps in our knowledge? Yes, right? Because the tool is an approximation. The tool is, in a certain way, a kind of metaphorical reaching of something that is in, indeed beyond our totalizing grasp. And this is to Edwin's point with regards to the best models that physics offers, right? When Edwin and I studied physics at the University of Rochester and had wonderful courses and, and busted our hump trying to <laughs> do homework and all of that stuff there, one of the things that was definitely motivating us in this pursuit, in these studies, and, and I'm going to speak on behalf of Edwin as here uh, as well. Edwin, please correct me if I'm wrong, is, is that we desired, we had rather a kind of totalizing framework, right? We saw physics, as it were, as a master science, the master epistemic position insofar as it's getting to the fundamental roots of reality, right? There are some things that we sort of explored and discovered by way of that thinking. But here is what's the fascinating thing. And I think this, this is one of the main things that I want to articulate right now. In light of your question, Lewis, about gaps in knowledge, what physics and what science in general and mathematics reveals to us is that there is something baked in 
to, as far as we see reality as it is now, baked into it such that we can never arrive at a totalizing framework, right? So you have a concept called quantum indeterminacy, right? I mean, th this is really wild, right? Because what it's saying is, is that, well, insofar as we can know the momentum of a particular particle, we can't know with absolute certainty its position. And right, there's a sort of inverse relation here. And it's like all this fuzziness. And then even in mathematics, you have Gödel's uh, incompleteness theorem, which is analogously saying something like that also within the domain of mathematics, which is crazy because when we approach math, it's like, oh, but, you know, we have this kind of absolute certitude with mathematics and challenges us. And so it's saying something fundamentally baked into the very fabric of reality, whether we're talking about intellectual or we're talking about mathematical concepts or physical concepts or, or physical reality, I should say, that says we won't ever arrive at a sort of totalizing awareness of things. And so what that then means is there are going to be always some variables that escape our notice, things that will come tangentially. We can't predict with absolute certitude about many things. And so what that does to me is, hey, Joe, the position of humility is important, right? Remain open. Dance with this. Don't try to master it. Yes, work hard, work hard, but there's something always greater at stake. I want to um, elaborate on what you just said, Joe. Because of the doomsday clock, I think there's something great about its motivational power and such that, so Joe just said that, you know, we went into the university in terms of physics, you know, being the master science. For the next generation, you know, the children of our children, they're going to go into university understanding this concept of the doomsday clock, polycrises, metacrises, and so on. And their motivation is going to be a little different. They're going to be like, oh, you guys are just looking at science, right? Like now, it's, you know, now we have to try to understand philosophy. We have to understand biology. How, how does all of it come together so that they can solve true problems? So one thing that is I know Joe and I could go back and forth on this. One of the things that I'm actually motivated by, the climate activists are today, right? The young teenagers who are saying that there's just one strand of the doomsday clock. So their motivation is, I want to go beyond just understanding these specific, you know, finite problems and want to understand the whole. Because as human beings, that's what we want to do. And we now have the vocabulary to do that. The challenge I think they'll face is... Interestingly enough, what you just said, Joe, the challenge is going to be humility. Because what I was going to propose as a potential solution, or an optimistic tone to all of this, is the advent of AI. I'm going to make a statement here, and you know, I think we really need to wrestle with this. We've just created something that's more intelligent than us. Now, we can go into the, oh, does intelligence you know, include emotions and blah, blah, forget all that. When it comes to solving the climate problem, we will not solve it. Human beings will not solve it alone. AIs will, right? Let's get tactical because the ability of an artificial intelligence to actually calculate, right? Because at this point, this is about computational power to actually be able to solve this sort of complex way of understanding these issues solely reliant on our AI capabilities, not our physical intellectual capabilities. 
So a challenge to a humility, right? It's as a human being, we're now understanding that we're not even going to be able to go to a university to learn enough to solve a particular problem. We actually see this in physics now, right, Joe? In terms of like the amount of potential discoveries in physics that have just been so limited because the problems have gotten so big. It's gone, it's gone beyond our grasp. Love you all perspective on this, like more in this question of humility and what is our place in that in a world where we're not, we're not even the most intelligent agent, right? I think this is why philosophy is so important because again, you know, to use a cliche, it helps us to think outside of the box and leveraging AI in helping to resolve problems that seem to be beyond human reach, I think is a very... I want to say attractive idea. It really is. And I think there's something to that. I really do. Now, that being said, what kind of baptism, if you will, into philosophy helps us to do is consider also the approach that we're taking, right? So what AI seems to offer us, and I really mean when I use the word seems, is greater power by means of computational dynamics, right? It can do so much more in a shorter amount of time. However, we may need to ask ourselves, is that the right approach? Maybe, right? Again, it's perhaps too early to tell. But the reason why I ask that is, consider what happened during the pandemic. Right? The whole world was forced to stop and weird, fascinating things began to happen, right? Sea creatures in the Hudson River that we haven't seen in hundreds of years. <laughs> you could see the, the waters of the canals in, right. in Venice and, and like, air like quality. The, and yeah, right. Things were like being reset. Right. Now, again, what does it take to solve the climate crisis? <laughs> Well, what got us into the climate crisis? I mean, we could make an argument with regards to a kind of runaway capitalism, an industrializing world that is galvanized by means of a desire for profit for one reason or another, right? Accessibility, power, right? And we then tend to sort of take a similar approach in trying to resolve it. It's like, okay, we need something even bigger and better to resolve that. But when we started out with the industrializing paradigm, it was precisely because we saw it as a bigger and better something to get us something more and quicker, you see. So it's, it's sort of like the irony of what was happening 70s, 80s, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to start beginning to genetically modify our food, GMOs. And then now it's all the fad to go organic, which is a return to nature and the eschewing of technology, not in a sort of radical sense, but it's saying, yeah, we perhaps shouldn't be messing around by sort of curating or, you know, genetically modified organisms so we can get a better crop yield, right? Maybe there is a real link between that and cancer. Maybe there's... And so again, it's, it goes back to another conversation we've all had several weeks ago about whether or not technology just, it just surpassed our humanity insofar as we don't have the moral fortitude and the deep ethical and existential awareness to say, we're not clever enough. 
Now, I'm not giving an answer, right? I'm not saying, well, here's what we need to do. I'm just problematizing the approaches that we, I think, sometimes we have. Now, I'm not, again, and I'm not saying we shouldn't use AI. <laughs> it's just that I would feel comfortable in our moving collectively together forward hand in hand with a kind of, again, that spirit of humility and, and sort of open discourse and say, okay, let's, let's try this. Okay, let's, let's take a couple of steps back. Let's try that, right? Rather than this is the solution, right? Because when historically, when we've done that, we've played ourselves, as we would say in, in, in the streets of Brooklyn. <laughs> we've played ourselves. Right. <laughs> so anyway, some thoughts there. I think, Joe, that I agree with you on a long term for sure. And I'm going to make a, a weird reference here. The thing is with AI specifically is if you all have noticed, we're like getting FDA approval for some of major breakthroughs in, in pharmaceuticals. That's coming from AI, right? I mean, it's, you know, th this, this was the field I was in before. We're like pushing forward. And there was a, several molecules that have been discovered that the AI, literally the AI, right? They said, they pressed go on the machine and said, we need a solution to this. This is the methodology. And it gave us medicine. That has never happened before. That's right? amazing. So I'm using that as a proxy. I think more, a lot of our near-term problems will actually be solved accordingly. And so I'm actually agreeing with you from the doomsday clock perspective, Joe. We're going to find ourselves saying, oh, the doomsday clock is not a big deal anymore because... Here's all these potential solutions that we've actually, that's manifested from our interaction with AI. So that's the optimist in me. The problem in the long term, which is where I agree with you, Joe, is that if, I don't know if you all have ever watched Godzilla, the cartoon. The, <laughs> the cartoon, the, brother. The, the cartoon version <laughs> yeah. of Godzilla. Yeah. It's deep, bro. It's deep. Mm. <laughs> so what happens in that movie, that anime version of it, is that Human beings, you know, have they've colonized other planets. They've gotten these advanced technologies, and then they come back to Earth, right? And what they're trying to tame, you know, Godzilla is a representation of nature in that movie. So they try to tame Godzilla or nature as an analogy and realize that they're struggling. We're like, wait, wait, we have all this technology. We're like, we're co collaborating with other species and so on. And we're, you know, this is earth, right? This is where we came from. This is, you know, and they find a group of people, of humans that have stayed on earth and they're primitive. And it's only, I'm going to ruin this for a little bit, but I don't think you all are going to go see it. <laughs> Towards the end, what they find is the ability to actually tame nature came from those folks that they considered primitive. And the reason they were able to do it is because they had a connection to nature that human beings in general had lost. So the solution to some of the problems that they're facing was beyond their ability because their minds were framed around technology. Now, I throw all that out there because this is actually real today in terms of, I mean, this is why we're doing the show in terms of philosophy and so on. I started having this sort of thought experiment around human beings like ourselves who did not have any of this stuff, weren't creating podcasts, who were spending all day reading books, talking to each other, doing all these things that we no longer do today with some level of regularity. And what I realized is that this is not a future concept. This has already happened. If I was to travel back in time right now, 
these individuals would be intellectually superior to me in ways that I can't understand today. Because, you know, we grew up with technology and all this other stuff. They grew up without it. There's a reason why Albert Einstein existed. There's a reason why you have all these philosophers. They are intellectual superiors because of their ability to actually master the niche, which lacked a lot of the technology that we have today. That change in us is what I'm seeing in what you said, Joe. And I, and I think it, it is definitely real. In the long term, we will forget. I think in the near term, we'll, we'll have solutions. No, that's good. I, I love it. Go ahead, Lewis. I wanted to bring up an article you shared, Edwin, by Mark Andreessen. He was the co-founder of Netscape. He shared an article. We'll link it. It's called Why AI Will Save the World. And what's funny is when you shared it, Edwin, I was a bit pessimistic about AI as a potential tool to help in these areas. I considered it, and I still kind of do, like one of the disruptive technologies that just I didn't see the potential for it to be utilized as a force for good, ultimately, like, like as a net benefit. But in the article, Mark gives a lot of different examples of how AI has already kind of helped, like you said, the short-term problems. And it just ended on a positive note that AI is the most powerful technology that we have ever invented and that we should embrace it as a force for good. I would argue like that's essentially what was being said there. Applying that to our conversation about the doomsday clock and also what you just shared it's like a humanity as like a globally connected world in 2023 that to me itself is like a loaded statement but i'm saying in the context of like post covid the current technologies that we have at our disposal that have us connected in a way that we've never been before as a species it seems to me like there's a limited or there's a particular mindset that we collectively as a species have. And it makes me concerned about that there's a gap between the mindset that will be required to handle something like climate change, like you said. Because I, I also, I've seen that even like with other cultural groups, native climate activists and their approach being different than someone who is white or European climate activist and just the difference in culture and, and people groups but now we have this like unifying tool in AI. Like it seems like there's a struggle or I'm recognizing like a, a struggle in mindsets and approaches when it comes to the doomsday clock and these things. I wanted to get your take on it, Joe and Edwin, as far as how can we find that new solution from this limited standpoint, from a place of limited knowledge and also I'll just say capitalist mindset that like we all have because of the global system, you know, we subscribe to it to a certain degree. Yeah. Like how can we break free from this, this mindset that we are all kind of trapped in globally? Right. I take the position that it is naive, submit the idea and to argue for the idea that AI or any technology can save us. Why? It seems to me that it is completely myopic, that judgment myopic with regards to human history. Whatever technology is, we know that it has the power to be used for good or for ill. Plain and simple. It becomes an extension of what is and a means to express what is innate to the human condition. Theoretically, I can use AI to generate the worst virus that will kill 
80% of the world in like five weeks, right? I, I mean, insofar as I could use it to cure, I can use it to kill with greater efficiency. It's like any tool. It just boggles my mind when we have an overly optimistic appraisal of whatever technology it is, right? Of whatever technology it is, insofar as it stands over and against or over and other to the human condition as such. And it's the human that is interacting. And so insofar as the human is interacting, the human is going to use it for this or that. That, I think that's an important thing. Again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use a technology. What it does mean is, is again, let's not play ourselves. Let's recognize there is something ingredient to the human being as such. And this ingredient element is the human condition that needs moral and spiritual formation so that we are better, better positioned to resolve whatever problems we face and use technology in a healthy way. If there is insurmountable, if there are insurmountable problems, let's use technology, let's come together and try to resolve it, but let's always recognize there's something greater at work. There's something that beckons us. There's something that calls us forward. I think it's very important we maintain that idea, if you want to call it that, mindset, because if we don't, we fall into the trap of, once again, a totalizing framework. A new toy comes out. We get very dazzled with the new toy. We say, oh my gosh, this is it. This is going to solve everything. This is amazing, da-da-da-da-da. And then we use it and... Again, we may play ourselves. So all I have is just history as an example. What about you, Edwin? Yeah, I love what Joe just said, because I actually think going back to the doomsday clock, there's a slight modification we can make. 100% agree with you, Joe. There's this illusion. I'm actually an optimist for the short term, right? Because AI will actually end up solving a lot of our technological material problems. So to the point that you were making earlier, the problems that will arise are the ones that we can't yet see uh, because it's in our interaction with uh, AI that it's going to, it'll actually start to develop. And that problem has a lot more to do to Joe's point with our own capabilities. Lewis, I actually think that there's a missing strand based on what Joe just said to the doomsday clock, which is what makes us blind, right? This is why these issues keep arising, right? So when, as an analogy to what Joe just said, when social media first came out, people went crazy. It's like, we're going to be more democratic. We, this is what's going to happen. I remember, right? It was what ended up happening is that we're at a point today in 2023, for anyone who listened to this podcast, where we're saying to ourselves, we're probably better off without social media, right? Because of the things that arose from that. You know, we have dictators that are now using social media. And we're talking about this as a democratic force. Now, you know. The good that came out of it was realized, which was that we are able to like speak to each other on a global scale in a way that we've never had. Individuals are now able to actually have an impact on our society in a way they never had, right? A TikToker can bring down an entire country. That's what we were saying. It happened. But so did all this other bad stuff that we didn't foresee. There's a human condition piece of this. I think it is getting worse because there's a lot of philosophers, scientists, and so on who are saying that. We are progressing. Life is getting better and has gotten better. But there is this psyche aspect of it that hasn't 
you know, when we're talking about like a measuring tool, we need that part of it. Otherwise, Joe's right, right? We're incomplete. All we're doing is we're measuring things that are outside of our own condition. And then the, our own condition is going to be the very thing that brings us down. This raises the question about hope in the final analysis as well. Because as I see it, both as a philosopher and a theologian, there are really only two options, eschatologically speaking, that, are, that stand before each and every one of us, which is the, the option for transhumanism or the option for the new heavens and the new earth, <laughs> the resurrection. And if you boil all of our positions down, when it comes to conversations like this, I think it really comes down to two camps, right? One that just says, well, in the end, I don't know how it's going to happen, what's going to come, but in the end, we will somehow resolve the human condition. We will, with our technology, with our fanciness, we're going to finesse our way and evolve and boom, we have arrived, right? That's option number one. Or option number two is, bro, even with the best technology, in fact, precisely through the best of our technology, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our depravity, our proclivity to insanity, as well as our innate goodness and dignity and worth and beauty and strength and intelligence, all of it would just be made more and more manifest in and through the technology. And so we need a savior. <laughs> that is, we need something that is decisively other, that will, as it were, by means of a verticality, descend into our horizontal way of being and thinking to truly disrupt and thus save us. Now, that's a very, right, that, <laughs> that's a very provocative claim in our, what Charles Taylor would call, buffered selves in our rampant secularized world. It's like, what? Bro, get out of here with that. But that's how we see it. And those are the only two options when it comes to conversations like this. And what? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being a clown. To kind of close and wrap up this conversation, I wanted to ask, what is a good self-reflective question for the listener in spite of our conversation about the doomsday clock, about the, the crises before man and this invitation to either rise to the challenge or not, essentially, when it comes to these meta crises? Like what's something that we can ask ourselves and, and begin to kind of meditate and, and chew on on a, on a self-reflective level in dealing with this existence that we're in? I'll take a quick stab at it, Lewis. Great question. Instead of going about it by way of reflection, I would say we should try to become people of integrity. What I mean by that is let us start with where we are. So as I think of climate change, it's easy to go about it through ways of a sort of systems approach, a systems thinking, which is good and healthy and has its place. But I can do that in such a way that forsakes my individual responsibility. The same with regards to any of the risks, right? Biological, technological, whatever the case is. And so, you know, the whole cliche, be the change you want to see, be, what is it? Be the change you want to want to see yeah. take place in the world or whatever. Yeah, yeah, be the right. kind of, I mean, that's, that's true. It's true. Mm -hmm. It's easy to, and sounds trite, but it's true. If we are people of integrity, if we are speaking, thinking, and being, in one, in union with what we 
and who we truly are and are living ethical, morally upright lives in all that we do, the world will transform before our eyes. And with that, it's out of that space, I think we need to do the thinking. This idea of let's get a think tank together, disincarnate intelligences in a room of a bunch of people who don't even know how to dance because they're not in tune with their own bodies. <laughs> and we're going to resolve the world's problems. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe not, right? It's like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I take that question like seriously, right? It's, it's, it, this is an important thing. And so I think we need to become people of integrity in the here and now of our concrete existence, right? In our lived existence to live in such a way that, that reflect our intellectual endeavors and our aspirations. Love it, Joe. I think what I was going to say is very similar. We were having this conversation about solving problems of our own experiences, right? And we're saying that that's complex, right? I challenge anyone, if you really want to grapple with the, the true complexity of what we face is the old native quote around any problem, look at it through the lens of seven generations in the future and seven generations in the past. And if you can grapple with that, then you're truly understanding what the magnitude of this problem is. And we don't have that perspective today. So this is the direct challenge to anyone who thinks that they understand things. Grapple with that first, and then try to understand the complexity of the issues that we're facing today in that light. And you will truly understand the complexity of the challenge ahead of us. Oh, Edwin, thank you guys so much. And as always, we're gonna continue to have these conversations and wrestle with these conversations, but I look forward to pursuing knowledge and truth with you guys going forward. Thank you.